millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu. And this time round, on the podcast, we're going to talk about something that is a book and a film and a TV show, which means naturally, of course, we're going to be talking a little bit about censorship, church history, physics and language. Yeah, right. Bear with me on this. So there's a, there's an interesting quirk. I've discovered. Well, Quirk's perhaps underdoing it. Britain has created many great writers, authors, stage crafters, etc. Shakespeare, Dickens, these are names that reverberate around the world. That's not to say that Britain is unique. You might be having Salinger in America, you might have Tolstoy in Russia. Many countries have great writers. That's not unique to Britain. However, what's a bit unusual is over a 60-year period in the 20th century, Britain created not one, not two, but a total of four world-class children's fantasy fiction writers. These four individuals have carved out billions in the entertainment industry, creating probably, again, billions of fans and enjoyers of the worlds that these four people created. Now, one of them I've already done a podcast on. Indeed, it was the first podcast in the new format. That would be J.R.R. Tolkien and his books, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. But Tolkien had a friend. He was in the same literary society, went to the same university, and that was C.S. Lewis, who created the Christian allegory series, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Well, I was hiding in the wardrobe in a spare room. Spare room? Is that another All the various books built around that. Then things go quiet for about four decades. But you've got this sort of flurry of activity in the late 30s through to the early 50s, and then things kind of go quiet. Look, I guess we could throw in another person in there that sort of like links these ones, Roald Dahl as well, although his is aimed at a slightly younger audience. I mean, they're brilliant, glorious books as well, but I'm going to say they're slightly different to the likes of Lord of the Rings, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the other two. 
Now, we come to the 1990s, and probably the bigger of the two, well, not probably, definitely the bigger of the two, is one, J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter books. You're a wizard, Harry. However, just before, a couple of years before the first Harry Potter book, there was a man in Oxford who decided to come up with an extraordinarily ambitious trilogy of books. His name's Philip Pullman. The trilogy has become known as His Dark Materials, but the actual books themselves are called The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass. The Golden Compass is also called Northern Lights, so it gets a little bit tricky. It's a little bit Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, but we'll get into that a little bit more. And it's his dark materials that we're going to be spending time talking about today. Because right now, yes, right now, if you got access to the BBC, if you're in America, I've got no idea how you listen to this, but right now, the second series, the Subtle Knife series, is running on the BBC. And it's one of the biggest, most expensive productions that the BBC's ever done. I believe it's in association with HBO. BBC and HBO have done a number of projects together, perhaps most notably and most awesomely Band of Brothers, that amazing true life series about combat soldiers in World War II in the European front, American soldiers, paratroopers. But anyway, the point is, Philip Pullman created these books, and I, I want to explain my journey with them because a friend of mine started reading them first and he explained them to me really badly. <laughs> so badly, I thought, eh, eh, fair enough, maybe I'll give them a try. But a little bit like Harry Potter, well, I mean, I think like almost any book, very few books just come out and are instant smash hits. If you look at Dan Brown and Da Vinci Code, for example, that was something like his fourth or fifth book he had written. He was by no means an overnight success, but finally the formula caught fire with the Da Vinci Code. And first Harry Potter's, if you can find a first edition, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, because only a few thousand were actually produced, lots of them were sent to libraries, they get pretty badly damaged. So trying to get a good condition first edition, even though we're only talking about something that's maybe 30 years old, it's incredibly rare and could go for a lot of money. So it takes a time to build up some momentum. And Philip Pullman, he started his uh, trilogy before Harry Potter, but his third and final book of the trilogy came out the same year as the fourth Harry Potter book, which was The Goblet of Fire, which, you know, really by then Harry Potter was just a juggernaut and sort of Philip Pullman was being dragged along with that. But it is actually a very different story. Now, for the record, I'm a big fan of Roald Dahl. I guess I got to get another shout out to as well. I'm a fan of Dahl, Tolkien, Rowling, and Pullman. You know, C.S. Lewis, as one comedian went, it's a bit nice, it's a bit Christian, isn't it? In your world, I have another name. You must learn to know me by it. I think it's perfect for when you're like eight, nine years old. And what's interesting is, whereas people know that The Lord of the Rings is a trilogy, a lot of people just read The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe and are happy with that and don't realise there are all these other books in the series. So, at least fan on that one. But Pullman just blew my mind. As much as I adore the Potter books, Pullman is just at another level, and I'll explain why. So, the opening, and this is something that I, in the back of my mind, I'd love to do my own version of, but the opening of this amazingly epic series is a little girl in a cupboard who's overhearing a meeting, and she shouldn't be there. So it starts off as small and claustrophobic as it can get. You know, it's a little girl in a confined space. And from there, 
it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We go on this truly epic journey. I mean, Harry Potter might introduce you to a whole fantastical wizarding world, but Dark Materials takes you to an entire multiverse of possibilities. It is that ambitious. So it becomes clear as you're sort of reading this, whereas the, the little girl, Lyra is her name, Lyra is in Oxford, but it becomes clear as they start talking, either this is Oxford from 100 years ago, or it's a weird Oxford. And, and as it goes on, it's like, no, this is definitely a weird Oxford. And the biggest hugest difference between these, shall we say, normal human beings in this Oxford and us is that everybody has a daemon and you work out after a while it's their soul. And whereas our soul lives within us, if you believe that kind of stuff, their soul is an embodiment of an animal, which is sort of reflective of your personality, I guess. However, children's demons can shapeshift. So once you become a teenager, you basically your demon settles, and that is the shape of it forever. And there's sort of like little comments about how some demons love playing in the water so much, they become a fish, which forces their human to become like a fisherman, if, you know, because you can't live without your soul. So, you know, and you can't stay too far away from your, from your demon. The further away, the more uncomfortable you are. A beautiful metaphor of compromising your morals. So that is a very big difference, which of course, if you're sitting there going, hang on, that means means every single person in the TV show or movie is going to have to have either an animatronic or a really well-trained or a CGI animal next to them, and that's going to get expensive. Yaha. But that's not the, the half of it. Their world is similar to our world. There is something called the Magisterium, we would call the church, run by these priests, cardinals, who are very, very keen on everybody following the laws. You know, a bit like the Catholic Church not that long ago with the Inquisition and sort of trials of heresy and stuff like that. Literally, people are put on trial for heresy in this world. However, there's clearly some magic as well, and there's some fantastical beasts. And this is where I could spend the entire podcast just telling you the whole sort of setup and plot. But I think you're with me in that this is all quite fantastical and incredibly well thought through. And what everybody's interested in is the fact that the Northern Lights, you know, that real phenomena that we get in the North and in the South, North Pole and South Pole. And what it is, if, in case you don't know, is our planet is surrounded by charged particles. So here we go. Getting into some physics here, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We have magnetic fields around planet Earth, which creates a magnetic force, which charges particles in the upper atmosphere, and that protects us from being destroyed by the sun, okay? Not just the ozone layer, but also other very dangerous particles, a sort of skip past planet Earth. But when the sort of solar winds, when the solar particles interact with the particles at the, the two poles uh, on planet Earth, not like every day, it's almost like weather, but they sort of like energize them and you get these remarkable lights in the sky, the northern lights. You know, they sort of like look, it's sort of green bluey and it's sort of like ethereal and it does just look like almost like it's CGI it's like well clearly that's that's made up but it isn't and therefore you can understand why you get people like the Vikings praying to them because yeah I mean those are obviously the gods in the skies I mean you have to have a degree in physics to understand what's really going on so they're pretty amazing but in this world they see the normal lights but there is clearly a city shimmering in there 
a city in the sky. And cutting a long story short and getting away from lots of different things, there turns out to be a way to travel to alternate universes. You know, there again, with the physics, when you get into areas like string theory uh, and the different sort of uh, types of dimensions, you know, you've got length, width, depth, you've got time. And there is a theory that you could have like 11, 12 different dimensions, which probably opens up the theory of the multiverse, where basically anything that could have happened has happened in an infinite number of, of universes. And basically, Lyra and the whole goal of the Magisterium is to sort of see if they can get into this alternate universe. And it's an epic journey, and I'm, I'm going to sort of explain some language in a little bit. But yeah, so Lyra is this incredibly brave and curious little girl who gets tied up in this massive conspiracy, and there's these epic battles and meeting of wondrous creatures, and it ends with the sacrifice, a horrific sacrifice of a child, which finally opens up the door to this other world. I'm trying to keep things a bit vague so I don't spoil too much for you. And Lyra is able to go into this other world. And so when it finishes on, okay, oh my God, this, you know, a child has been killed and a door to another universe has been opened. And Lyra steps through and says, ah, oh, I can't wait for book two, The Subtle Knife. And then The Subtle Knife comes out and the opening is nothing to do with Lyra. And you are so annoyed that they introduce this kid called Will. It's like, who's Will? Don't like Will. And, and Will is in our universe. Oh, that's a boring universe. No, no demons in our universe. No sort of epic battles in the North Pole. Nah. And I just remember the sheer deflation. But Will in our universe is in his Oxford, our Oxford, and he notices a little weird shimmer next to a tree and he steps through it. And basically the universe that Lyra goes through to is the same universe that Will goes through to and the two of them meet up. Now, I cannot summarize this whole story, but as I said, it starts off with this little girl in a cupboard. And by book three, you literally have a war with heaven. There is an epic multi-dimensional battle, not between necessarily good and evil, but between sort of like truth and faith, between sort of scripture and diktats and free will. But I mean, it's not a metaphorical one. There are, there are literally bazillions of creatures and elementals and spirits battling it out. So you cannot go from a smaller, more intimate start to a bigger, more ambitious ending and oh my God, what a journey. I felt so upset about halfway through the third book, The Amber Spyglass, that I, I was getting a bit depressed. So I'm going to finish this story and then it's done. Sniff, sniff, sniff. So I really hope I've kind of sort of opened your eyes to this. Like I say, the TV series is in its second series on the BBC, maybe on HBO. I'm not quite sure how you would get access to it, but it's out there. That's the important part. But about 12 years ago, they tried turning it into a series of movies. It had Nicole Kidman in it. It had Daniel Craig in it. But the problem was, because it's a Hollywood movie, they basically took out all the references to the Magisterium and the church, which in the first movie you you can just about get away with. But as I said, by the time you get to the third film, you know, that's kind of the whole point of everything. So it, it only ever had one film because it didn't do very well at the box office. It was one of these things where it was too confusing for people who had no had, had never read the books. And if you'd read the books, you were watching the incredibly vanilla streamlined version of the story and were deeply unimpressed by it. 
Was there money put into it? Absolutely. But it just, it was a very unfaithful adaptation, which had thrown out a lot of the meat, which was a, a real shame. It's been an unsuccessful film called The Golden Compass rather than Northern Lights. And, and now it's into a TV show, but you can always read the books. You could read the books right now if you wanted to. So with the, you know, the, the books and the story and you know, Philip Pullman's background sort of all, all put pieced together, let's start putting some history into this. So because Philip Pullman has done some remarkably unusual research in it. So back to Lyra's world, you know, the original world we start off with. They talk about some weird things. They have anbaric lighting. And you're sitting there thinking, it takes you a while to work out. They're not talking about candles. You realize they're talking about electric lights. And then it brings you on to a conversation. And, and at that point, I thought, I need to do a little bit of research on this too, because we get very used to words. And what I find interesting is the more recent the creation of an of a object, the more common you get the name. For example, police. You know, it could be polizia, policia, police. But, you know, most countries in the world have a variation of police. And provided they have like a, a Latin based alphabet, you can see that that's a police officer, not just because of the uniform, but because, well, I mean, I don't know how many of you out there can speak Turkish, but because Turkish is completely phonetic, it's spelled P-O-L-I-S. So even if you don't know Turkish, you know the word for police, that's for sure. In fact, the only country I can work out that has a very, very different word for the word police is Wales, which is Hedlu. It's where I went to university for three years. H-E-D-D-L-U, Hedlu. And it means peace force. But I would argue, surely, you know, if, if I'm a German you know, person there and I see a car with headloo on it, I, that doesn't help me. Whereas if you like, police is quite a useful international word to have. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So anyway, we have these words, but if you go back far further to something like the word tree or water, those were some of the first things human beings would have seen in Japan, in Afghanistan, in the Serengeti, in England. And, and therefore, these countries have completely different words for them. Now, there are some commonalities. For example, no, the negative, nay, nine, higher. There are loads and loads of different words for no. The thing they all have in common is they're short. Because if you want somebody to stop something, you don't want it to be along the lines of, please, could you cease and desist because I find this most disagreeable. You know, by then you've been bashed over the head four times. So you want people to stop something, it's always very short. Similarly, mother and father or mummy, daddy, ma, pa, etc. Because a child has very limited vocabulary, again, the name for mother and father is always very simple and relatively short because you do not want, a child's never going to be able to say, I have the fruit of the loins of my parents. Again, they're just, they'll be five by the time they could say something like that. So there are some very practical points to language. But why did somebody look at that big brown leafy thing and go tree rather than arbre, which is French for, for tree? So yeah, it's completely arbitrary. You know, we are very much prisoners to our language. There's this whole argument about how we should preserve some of these very obscure languages that are perhaps spoken by only a few dozen people in a small little community, like an Inuit community or something like that. It's like, does it really matter? You know, people in Korea are never going to learn that. One of the great things about perhaps the greatest export from these islands is the English language. Now, English breaks all its own rules. You get weird spellings all over the place. It's a mess. But one of the great things is, is because, you know, for about 100 years, Britain was the preeminent power around the world. And for about 100 years, America's been the preeminent power around the world. It means that in the modern world, we can all agree that English is a useful language. And yes, while more people in the world technically speak Mandarin Chinese, around the world, English is the most commonly spoken language. And that's useful because we need to communicate with each other. It's just a shame that we picked a language that was uh, actually one of the least useful to learn. I digress a little bit. But the point is, your language starts shaping what you know. I watched a whole philosophical conversation saying, you cannot describe the sensation of wetness unless you've experienced it, because there are no words that can properly bring across the idea of being wet. And what I mean by that is, you know, sitting in a bath, being in a shower, going in a swimming pool, something like that. Trying to describe that to somebody who has never had any experience of it, there's just not enough there for you to get across what it actually feels like to be wet. Don't believe me? I don't know, try. But you could, you're not allowed to use references that, that a person would necessarily get, which makes it also very difficult. But anyway, my point is this. We talk about, he talks about ambaric lighting. Well, funnily enough, ambaric was one of the first words for electrical lighting. But for some reason, it, was, it just never caught on. Electric was considered better. 
It's like when Edison, Edison technically didn't invent the telephone. I mean, Edison is credited with lots of different inventions and he basically enhanced a few of them. Some people came up with very rudimentary versions before him. But, you know, he was the person who created the, the mass production of the telephone, the, the mass usage of it. And he suggested that we start off all telephone conversations with ahoy ahoy. You know, thinking almost like a communication on a ship, which is a very is a sensible place to do it. But funny enough, that didn't catch on either. But there are other sort of like weird linguistic traits that happen in the book. For example, it takes a while. You know, these aren't the first things that pop up, but there are scralings in it. And I happened to actually have an idea what a scraling was because of my degree. And here's something interesting. When the Vikings or the Scandinavians reached North America, they talked about being attacked by scralings. And we and it doesn't take your genius to work out a Native American, which is a word that wouldn't have been used by anybody at the, in, let's say, 1000 AD when the Vikings arrived. Uh, Viking obviously is also a misnomer, as, uh, as I mentioned in the previous one. But that was their word for Native Americans. So clearly in, in Lyra's world, scrailing is, is genuinely, an, uh, an, again, another word in, in our world, but it's, it, it died out with the Vikings. But this clearly has, has clung on. There's this wonderful sense of it's like our world, but it's not quite like our world. I love that idea. It's that attention to detail that really sort of brings the whole place to life. Then we've got, as I said, the fantastical creatures, and there's no more fantastical than Eirik Brinson, or Yorick Brinson, uh, I've heard several different pronunciations of it, who is a Panzer Bjorn. Uh, what on earth is that? It's an armor-plated polar bear that can talk and also has sort of uh, prehensile thumbs and they're amazing sort of blacksmiths, but also warriors as well. And their kingdom is Svalbard. And Svalbard is not made up. Svalbard is genuinely a very large island off northern Norway, quite often under ice, I mean, depending on global warming, which does have a lot of polar bears on it. So again, Philip Pullman has taken something that's a real thing and extrapolated it into a fantastical setting. But Svalbard was only known by a few sort of like, you know, scientific groups up until the creation of the Golden Compass. Northern Lights, call it what you will, okay? Now, interestingly, I, I just want to sort of put this out, going back specifically to the books. The point is about the three books is that they are, uh, they're named after basically magical objects in each one. So Northern Lights is this sort of like light corridor into another universe. Subtle Knife is a very important sort of magical item, let's call it that, in the second book. And the Amber Spyglass is actually made by one of the characters, introduced in the second book, but is absolutely vital to the story in the third book. And so you can therefore see why, you know, the first book's kind of called a, called more about an event. The other two things are sort of portable things. And in the first book, there is a portable thing called an altheometer, lithiometer, you know, again, slightly made up word. What is it? It's a golden compass in the sense that it kind of looks like a clock, but it's got lots of images around the edges rather than numbers. And if you talk to it, it kind of it tells you the truth of something that's sort of happening right now. It doesn't tell you anything good or it doesn't tell you the good news or bad news. It just simply tells you the truth. And Lyra is able to talk to this. But this is one of the examples of a heretical object in the eyes of the magisterium, i.e. the church. And so let's go to that for a moment, because the, the Catholic Church is the preeminent Christian sect. I've heard, it's interesting, I've heard some Christians say, well, 
Catholics aren't Christians, they're Catholics, aren't they? Well, whether you like it or not, understanding Christianity in, in Europe and around the world can't really be understood without the Catholic Church. Today, there are about 2 billion Christians on planet Earth, and a little over 50% of them are Catholics, okay? There are more Catholics than any other Christian group around. So if you're going to turn around and say that they're horrible and terrible, but without Catholicism, your form of Christianity would never exist. Obviously, you get the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, Martin Luther, but what that is is a direct response against the Catholic Church. And and if the Catholic Church hadn't have existed, well, Martin Luther, well, it is worth remembering, he was a Catholic priest, but just got fed up with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has been running and it's sort of like, it also ends up in myth. There are about 260 odd popes, but there are at least a couple of dozen popes that are made up. We have no information on them whatsoever, no evidence on them uh, in any way. The numbering of the, ch of the popes gets so difficult that there's this, uh, in the uh, late 800s, there's this sort of infamous thing, the Cadaver Synod, where basically the new pope puts the old pope on trial, and to do that, they literally dig out the old pope. Now, the old pope's called Formosus. I'm, I promise you I'm not making this up. It's called the Cadaver Synod. It wasn't called that at the time, but it's become known as that. But here's the thing. The pope that was alive at the time, Pope Stephen VI, could have also been Pope Stephen VII. Because it was a little unclear exactly how many Stephens they were, they basically got the numbering wrong. So he's Pope Stephen VI slash seventh. And you don't get that with something like, you know, French kings, for example. So there is this sort of heaping of ideas in the Catholic Church. And just very, very quickly, there's something called the Donation of Constantine, which we know now is a medieval fake because it uses language that Constantine would never have used. You know, it, 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 there's all kinds of things wrong with it. But the people who created it are, again, presumably in the 800s, were basically saying to the, to the political leaders, the kings and emperors of Europe, saying, hey, look, the original guy, you know, remember Emperor Constantine? We all, we all remember he was the one who made the Roman Empire. Christian, that's pretty much all that was remembered by them by the early medieval era. Anyway, yeah, remember him? Oh, he gave the church huge amounts of power. So you can understand that one priest would have done that to protect the church. But of course, the donation, you know, the years travel on, nobody's going to admit that it was a forgery. So two centuries later, the church is still using the donation of Constantine, not knowing it's a fake, but still passionately arguing it. However, by the time you get to the Renaissance era, even church historians and scholars in the Catholic Church were going, hang on, this all looks a little fishy. I'm not entirely sure this is legit. So the donation of Constantine is an example of something that was made up, but became really important in the church. And it's an example of the church trying to protect itself. All institutions, religious or political or otherwise, will try and protect themselves. Everybody wants to self-preserve, don't they? Another example, let's fast forward a long, long time, to the 19th century and the translation of the hieroglyphics. It's done in both Britain and France. One of the key things was the Rosetta Stone found during the Napoleonic Wars in ancient Egypt, or in Egypt, I should say, which basically had a translation into multiple different languages of hieroglyphs that could finally crack the hieroglyphs. And it was the papacy that did everything they could to stop the translation. Why? Well, because it took them about five seconds to work out. We've got all these stories around Moses and like, you know, the Red Sea and stuff like that. This is all written from the Jewish point of view. What happens if it's biased or wrong? And so, you know, let's not get it from the other side. 
And let me tell you, it's really interesting because Moses is an... Look, you don't need to be religious to know who Moses is. He is a titan in the stories of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, or obviously the Old Testament. However, how many times do you think, and, and if you don't recall, Moses was brought in by the Pharaoh and was raised amongst the, the Pharaoh's children, and then he turned against the Pharaoh and they let my people go free. And then to, like, to, took them across the Red Sea and so on and so forth. How many times do you think Moses is mentioned in the ancient hieroglyphs? In all the hieroglyphics that we've, that we've uh, sort of discovered, the answer is zero. And, you know, so it shows you that, funnily enough, ancient scriptures weren't interested in the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but to get their own point across, because that's, again, a very human thing. So the church is, you know, you can argue that the church is not being truthful because it's trying to hide anything that could go against themselves, but at the same time, what institution wants to self-destruct as well? So, you know, you, this, this idea that the church sometimes abuses its power, perhaps for a greater good, Jem says in inverted commas, is something that is used very much in the magisterium in Philip Pullman's novels. And indeed, by the third book, and I don't want to give too much away, there's one priest who is sort of constantly punishing himself preemptively because he has done nothing wrong, but he's punishing himself for a sin because he's going to be asked to do something sinful. So he needs to atone for his sins right now. And that's a beautiful concept. It's not exactly something you get in the church, but you get these idea of indulgences. And it's indeed the papal indulgences that led to Martin Luther going, hang on, this is probably wrong. Where basically, you know, in the medieval era, you were genuinely worried about going to hell. So what do you do? Well, how about I pay the church a bunch of money and get the priest to pay uh, to pray for me? And if they pray for my soul, then maybe it'll swipe it clean of sin and I can go to a good place. But as soon as you start adding value to sort of being saved, then you can start working out how the church can make an awful lot of money. And then it's like, uh, well, maybe people should atone for their sins in a better way rather than just paying cash up front to assuage your guilt. So you know, that's sort of brought into all of this as well. There is so much more I could talk about as dark materials. I, I've talked a, a little bit about sort of like philosophical ideas, church ideas, physics as well, language. And if, if you like this, look, as always, I want to say to you guys, I've got something else to say after this, but I just want to say to you guys, please, please just tell one other person about this podcast. Please just spread the word to a mate, you know, post a link to it on Twitter or, or your Facebook page. Let's spread the love, because if you enjoyed this, there's more coming down the line. I can tell you that. But look, here's the sort of like a last little piece that's going on. So his dark materials and some of the ideas around this sort of sin is very much pulling on another great piece of literature. Dante's Inferno and, and the Divine Comedy as well, because the 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 ideas behind that as well was sort of showing the ludicrous nature of some of the some church actions and playing with the concepts of sin and redemption, which weirdly is the centerpiece of what is technically a kid story. So for that reason, I prefer his dark materials over Harry Potter. Look, Harry Potter is a great series of books, amazing 
amazingly well-structured stories, to the point where twists in book seven are literally laid out in book one. That is remarkable storytelling. However, it's a fairly sort of standard sort of like uh, defeating the monster type story, whereas Philip Pullman has that element, but also has these other levels of philosophy and theology thrown in there as well, which just to me makes it the most impressive sort of uh, uh, children's fantasy story, including Lord of the Rings. I'm going to put it out there. You know, feel free to come at me on Twitter at Jem Deducci, by the way. But yeah, I'm going to say Pullman is the best of the bunch. Thanks very much for listening. Another podcast next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.